Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop, but here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same, but if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Also, thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, so they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. And because it's the monthly mailbag, we are also joined by Sean Gates. Yay, Sean! Yay! Oh, nice to be back. Hey, he's a planner at Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And today we're going to cover your questions about shorting indexes. Do you prefer indexes or indices? Indices. You prefer indices, bro? Yeah. Sure, why not? <laughs> I'll go with Sean. I think when I write about it, I almost always say indices. I think mm-hmm. that's true. All right. Uh, well, you can say it either way. By the way, okay, there so, we go. All right, Allison we're, has spoken. We're also going to talk about how to. It's not just me. We're also going to talk about how to invest five hundred dollars, uh, inheriting stock, and four hundred one k Roth tax consequences. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. All right, Sean, you ready to get into it? Let's hit it. All right, the first question comes from Eric. I have been doing some research into how to minimize my tax burden in retirement, and have been using the TurboTax Taxcaster. Just as an experiment, I entered the following information, and it said I would not owe any taxes for 2018. Are you ready? We're ready. Single, head of household, age 48, taxable wages zero, qualified dividends 65,000. Is this true or is there a catch? Yeah, so this is true. Uh, there's no tax due because of the preferred nature of qualified dividends. So. Um, if you're head of household, that means you're sort of coupled up uh, to some extent, and um, the limits for that preferential rate can range as a single person from zero to thirty-eight thousand six hundred dollars, and then if you switch over to the married filing jointly, it's zero to seventy-seven thousand two hundred dollars. And if you fall in those ranges, your capital gains rates and your qualified dividends rates are at zero percent, so you don't owe any taxes on it. Now you want to keep in mind that qualified dividends are a very specific type of uh, result from a particular investment. And so you're kind of concentrating yourself into a particular type of investment to get that tax qualification. And you just want to make sure that you understand how that affects your overall diversification investment portfolio. Right. And by capital gains, you mean long-term capital gains, of course, not short-term capital gains. Correct. Exactly. Right. And it could even be better for Eric's looking at this as age 48, yep. but once you're 65, you get a higher standard deduction. And of course, in retirement, you get Social Security, and um, at least part of your Social Security is tax-free. So really, there are a lot of ways where you'll pay much less taxes in retirement. Yeah, and one other thing to keep in mind in terms of a lot of folks, all in, in, in this case particularly, you're looking at the current year and you get really excited because you see, oh man, I'm not going to pay anything in taxes. But what you would really should start to think about is your lifetime tax liability. Because if you're 48 and you have no taxable income, yes, you'll get the qualified dividends rate, but maybe you could consider pulling money from your IRA early. Uh, now you have to be mindful of 
potential penalties and all that, but there are, it gets complicated. But you could harvest income strategically in those low income tax rates to potentially avoid future tax liability that might be higher because of things that Bro mentioned. Next question comes from Ron. On last Friday's Industry Focus podcast, there was a question about shorting. I am in total agreement that shorting is super, super risky because of the unlimited downside, but what about ETFs that short the market or an index? I'm under the impression that if I am wrong, I would just lose what I invested. Why don't you start by explaining what shorting is? Sure. So, on the, it's basically the reverse of investing in companies for the long term. So, in this case, you're taking a bet against a company that, that it will do badly, and you want to profit from that company doing badly. So, you borrow shares from either other investors or from the market, and your bet is that that company will do badly, and as a result of the deterioration in its stock price, you will gain value. Um, and typically, the, the, it's considered more risky because when you short a stock, you have a potentially unlimited loss potential insofar as you know if you buy Amazon at $10 a share and you're short, if it goes up to $1,000 a share, you're on the hook for that continuing compound loss. And it could go to $10,000 a share, et cetera, et cetera. So theoretically, if you held that investment permanently, you would just keep losing money. The market uh, keeps going up, but yeah. the stock can only go down to zero. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So one way, so what he's, what this person is basically saying, if I instead put in $100 in one of these short ETFs, yeah. and that way, he's just risking the $100, right? Right. So it is, to a certain degree, he is right in that he is somewhat limiting his losses. That's right, yeah. So in this case, the ETF is, is creating a portfolio of shorts, and you're participating in that collection, and your loss is capped at how much you've invested in that inverse ETF versus directly shorting stocks, and so you get a little bit of downside protection. Right. So, But basically, if he is looking to reduce his risk in the market, I would generally say these short ETFs are, are not the way to go. I mean, we here at The Motley Fool generally think if, if you're worried about the market going down too much, just have, have some money on the side. One of the problems with these inverse ETFs is that they don't often perform as you would expect. So you'd think like, oh, if the market is down 10%, I would have made 10%. But the history of these is that they often don't perform that way. Um, sometimes they're a little better, sometimes they're a little worse, um, but they don't often as perform as expected. So if you're going to use one of these ETFs, research their history to make sure that you get a sense of how they perform given different market conditions. I could see how this could be tempting to someone who thinks that the market's due for a crash. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. The problem is, I mean, just in the history of this show, and we've been on the air for, what, over three years now, we've been having these questions about the market keeps going up, I'm worried, I should do something about that. Um, but you look at, for example, there's <laughs> there's a an inverse ETF called DOG, D-O-G, <laughs> and it is the inverse of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So if you became concerned in like 2014 that the market was dying, you bought this, you've lost money in 2015, in 2016, in 2017, and at some point, it's just not worth it. Whereas opposed to if you had just moved some money out of the market and put it in cash and bonds, you would have made money along the way. All right, next question comes from Alistair. Assume for a moment that we all arrive at retirement dewy-eyed and with an emergency fund, several years of spending money in low-risk assets, and a pile of stocks to last us through 30-plus years of retirement. There appear to be two general strategies for converting stocks into cold, hard cash. One, 
grow the basic value of the assets, then just sell the assets when we need cash. Two, convert the assets into dividend-generating stocks and bonds to provide income, maybe accepting the lower rate of return, but preserving the assets. Which one is more foolish? The quick answer is both. So I'll take the one with the dividends. And I personally I like the idea of dividends for retirement income for lots of reasons. First of all, there are many studies that have shown that a diversified portfolio of dividend-paying stocks is less volatile than the overall market. Dividends, again, as a group, tend to be paid each and every year and go up every year, at least at the rate of inflation and sometimes higher. There have been a handful of years over the last 50 years when um, dividends have been cut by the overall market. But for the most part, if you're getting, say, $5,000 this year from your dividend-paying stocks, you can be pretty sure you're going to get at least $5,000 next year. So from a planning perspective, I like that if I'm a retiree. Whereas if I'm going to rely just on capital gains, I don't know what my portfolio is going to be worth. There are many people who think that actually relying on capital gains is the better way to generate retirement income. And one of those people is none other than Warren Buffett. In his 2012 annual method, he explained what he called his sell-off method. Because he said you have a company that gets cash every year, and you can pay that as a dividend. But if you have managers who can actually reinvest in the company and grow the stock price even more, that's a better way to do it. Plus, with a dividend, you have to take it every year whether you need it or not. If it's outside of a retirement account, you have to pay taxes whenever you need it or not. But Buffett points out that if you're going to use capital gains, you only sell stock when you need it. If you don't need it, you can just hold on to the stock. And his other point was that with a dividend, it's completely taxable. With a capital gain, uh, only part of it is taxable because the part that comes back as basis is tax-free. So I think that argument is compelling as well. So I would generally say a diversified portfolio of both is a good idea. One way to maybe differentiate it is to say, like, I have a certain number of expenses that I have to cover in retirement. You make sure that's covered with Social Security, a pension if you get it, and maybe some solid dividend payers so you know you have that income coming in. And then you can be take a little more risk with the rest of your portfolio. Maybe invest in some of these stocks that don't pay dividends, like Amazon's and Netflix's. That have been great stocks to own, even for retirees, so even though they don't pay a dividend. And a report from the field: just generally, when I take calls from folks, the almost the default thought is. I have a pot of money, let's say it's a million dollars. I want to live off of that million dollars. So how do I get you to keep the million dollars at a million dollars and just pay me my desired income of $70,000? And they're like, so tell me what dividend portfolio you have that can give me a 7% yield. Well, the reality is that a 7% yield, because you need $70,000 a year off your million dollar portfolio, doesn't exist. Or it does exist, but it's an extremely risky version of dividend stocks. So there are high dividend payers who are stretching their business sheets to reward their shareholders with cash, risking some of the business needs to pay that high dividend. And then there are more stable dividends, like Bro was referring to, dividend growers and things like that. Um, so the, the reality is you need a combination of both, and ultimately you want the highest total return, and how you mix it up doesn't matter. You just need that, that overall return profile. Next question comes from Brian. As a relatively new investor at 30, I've adopted a moderately aggressive portfolio strategy consisting mostly of stocks versus mutual funds, bonds, and index funds. For an apparently more stable base, I've invested in stocks like Apple, Google, Amazon, and a few others, figuring out these companies would have to experience a massive meltdown to fail. 
That said, I can't help but be dis- disappointed that I couldn't have invested in these companies in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. This leaves me searching for the next big thing in the hopes that I could buy 50 shares of an Amazon for $30 and reap the benefits in 35 years. Amazon, yeah. by the way, now is trading for $2,000. Yeah. So that's what this guy's shooting for. On the other hand, I look at those companies and think they have a pretty good thing going. I don't see anyone reinventing the wheel and taking over their semi-monopolized hold on our world. What strategies do you advise young investors to take in order to find those budding companies, or is it just as smart and lucrative to jump on board of these already proven stocks, assuming that no one is going to rise up and do it better? Oh, the eternal question. Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it, it, it brings in so many pieces of the investment universe. So, the first thing that I wrote down in response to this question was asset allocation. And the reason that I wrote that down is because ultimately what you're describing is the difference between large, well-established businesses like Google and Apple that have already established their dominance in the market and smaller companies that are trying to be the next the next Amazon. And so one way to get exposure to those next up-and-coming companies is to invest in small capitalization or medium-sized companies with the hope that they grow into the large capitalization companies. But then the other component that's very crystal clear here is well, but I, Amazon's doing awesome, and, and there's a stability in that. And so that's the risk conversation, right? You don't want to risk your money in those next up-and-coming Amazons because there's a chance that they don't become the next Amazon, right? They could fail, and then you might lose value in that investment. So that's why it circles back to asset allocation. As a young person, you can certainly consider investing in small and medium-sized companies, potentially with a large percentage of your overall portfolio betting that there's some next Amazon in that in that mix of stocks. It's yeah, a very it, David Gardner approach, right? right? Like the idea of you got to if you're going to go for the rule breakers, you got to get a large basket of them and you got to have the stomach for it too. Exactly. It's not for everyone. Exactly. Given that Brian pointed out that he is a relatively new investor and he uh, listed these stocks as apparently more stable, Apple, Google, and Amazon, I just want to make sure he's aware of the fact that these could definitely go down 50% or more, just like each one of them have done in the past. And there are many stocks, in, in an upcoming question, GE will come up, many stocks that people thought, like, these will be companies that will do well forever, and they often don't. So you just never know. You always have to factor that into your plan. Yeah. Next question comes from Rob. What is the best way to handle inherited stocks with extremely low cost base? Basis CCs. Basis indices. Basis of bases. Basics. Basically, <laughs> inheriting stocks that your grandparents bought for a very low price. There you go. Right. Selling the stock would create a significant tax event, but I'm worried that continuing to hold the positions leaves me overexposed to just a handful of stocks, specifically ExxonMobil, Wells Fargo, and General Electric. GE, in particular, in recent years, has wiped out a large portion of my net worth. All at the moment, I have dividend reinvestment turned off to funnel those dividends to purchasing low-cost funds in an attempt to slowly rebalance the portfolio. But it's not moving as quickly as I'd like. Yes. So um, I'll start by just saying it's generally not a good idea to let taxes determine your asset allocation. Um, it's fine to consider them as a factor, but they should never be the primary factor. So, if you have a very concentrated portfolio that you think you should diversify and you're afraid of the tax consequences, go ahead and do it. Um, but the important thing here to know is that when you inherit a stock that isn't in a retirement account, like an IRA, your cost basis is the value of the stock as of the date of death. 
So if the original owner bought the stock for $10 and it was worth $100 as of the date of death, your new cost basis is $100. That's known as a step up in cost basis. That said, you could have a step down too. It works the other way around. So if your grandmother bought it for $100 and it was $10 on the day she died, your new cost basis is $10. There are some cases in which the value is actually six months after the date of death, depending on how the estate was settled. But for most people, it's as of the date of death. So it could be that that cost basis is actually higher than you think, given that, especially with these three stocks, they've had a lot of ups and downs over the last decade or two. So in this situation, it actually could be possible where you sell some of it at a capital loss to offset the gains of selling some of the others. So it actually, you might have more flexibility tax-wise with this situation than you think. That said, I still think even if you ended up having to pay capital gains to rebalance the portfolio, I think it's the smart thing to do, especially if you have a large portion of your net worth in these three companies. Yeah, and I would say just in dealing with these situations on a day-to-day basis, to Bro's point, one of the reasons that you might consider enlisting some help is there's this common wisdom that you shouldn't let taxes wag the investment dog, but it let's just say for sake of argument you have a million dollars worth of capital gains exposure in these stocks. If you if you shift your portfolio and recognize that all at once, your tax bill is enormous. And so maybe you decide that you have the risk capacity to distribute it over a year, two, or three. Ultimate goal is still to diversify the portfolio, but strategically recognize the taxes over time. And then another reason why you might want to consider getting help is because your situation uh, raises the opportunity to look at a more complicated investment where you might want to consider utilizing options, which can get complicated. But in your case, because you own the underlying investments like GE, you could implement an option that gives you the, the ability to participate in the deterioration of the stock and or strategically dole out those shares to other investors who think the prospects are brighter and reduce your position over time. And, and, and that can be a really smart strategy for these high concentrated portfolios. I would say that I think uh, Rob's being smart in that he's not reinvesting the dividends. Totally. That's a great way to build up a cash cushion or to invest in something else. But as he points out, it can take a while for that to have a meaningful impact on the asset allocation. Yeah. Next question comes from Jeff. I'm transitioning from being an employee at one company to an independent contractor at another. I have a 401k, pension, and HSA with my current employer, and I wanted your general thoughts on two things. One, what options do I have in saving for retirement and in an HSA as an independent contractor? And two, what should I do with my old 401k? It's a great question. And I think ultimately, as an independent contractor, it can get complicated in theory, but you're just self employed. And so, as a self-employed person, what is available to you for retirement purposes are all of the various self-employed retirement options. And I can kind of list them at a high level. I'd encourage you to look up each one for the specifics of it. But you can invest in an individual slash solo 401k. You can do a SEP IRA. You can do a simple IRA. You could do a defined benefit pension plan if you wanted to and if you made big bucks. Um, And... Yeah, that's pretty. You could also just simply invest in a traditional or Roth IRA. So, so any of those options are available. Uh, they each have different thresholds. Typically, if you make big bucks, think about a defined benefit pension plan or more likely an individual 401k. If you make less money, think simple SEP or traditional and Roth IRA. Um, as it relates to the HSA, 
the HSA is a, usually a function of what type of health insurance plan you have. So as a self-employed individual, look for a high deductible health insurance plan. And that high deductible health insurance plan, if it meets the the high deductibility or the or the premium amount that you might need to pay, that'll open up the option to utilize an HSA, and then you can start funding it. And I would strongly encourage you to consider that if you're young, given the power of the HSA account. Yep. And the other question was, what should he do with his old 401k? Um, generally speaking, it's better to move it, even if you're in. I mean, it could be you're in a plan with a really good 401k. Chances are the employer is covering costs for employees, but once you're no longer an employee, they make you cover some of those costs. That's what we do here at The Motley Fool. So generally speaking, you're probably better to move it either to an IRA or your new 401k if you just choose to open a solo 401k. Um, really, it always for me, it always starts with what do you want to invest in? Do you want to invest in individual stocks, mutual funds, ETFs? Find the broker that offers those options at the best prices, and then move your money there. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your mortgage for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-day purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS ConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. By selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's can offer their blades at a price much lower than the leading brand. Just $2 per blade compared to $4 or more. With Harry's, you get a quality shave at a reasonable price. Bro, just how quality was that shave? It was the best shave I've ever had. Find out firsthand what Mrs. Brogamp has been raving about. Get a $13 <laughs> value trial set. Comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, including a weighted ergonomic handle, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Listeners of the show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash fool. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash fool to redeem your offer and let them know we sent you to support the show. Next question comes from Nate. I'm planning to go back to school in a year for a two-year graduate degree. I have enough cash now to pay for it. Would it be smarter to put it into a conservative 529 plan to get some slight tax savings? Or should I invest the money, take out loans to pay for the degree, and assume that at some point in the next decade, my gains from stock investments will be greater, minus capital gains, taxes, and interest on the loans? And then, if they approve using 529 plans to pay for loans, should I do a more aggressive 529 plan? Well, Nate, first of all, good for you for saving enough money to pay yeah, for your awesome. graduate school degree. So I would say play it safe, use the money to pay for a degree, that way you can graduate uh, debt-free, get your new job, and then start accumulating money in whatever 401k, IRA, or whatever you're doing after at that point. Um, by doing it the other way, taking out the loan and then investing in the stock market, you just, you just don't know what's going to happen. 
Um, at the end there, he, he brings up an interesting point, and that is for 529s, the withdrawals are tax-free as long as the money is used for a qualified expense. Paying back a school loan is not a qualified expense. Oh. So generally speaking, if you were to take out that money, you'd pay the 10% penalty and taxes. However, there is a new proposal now, part of uh, Tax Reform 2.0, just recently brought out, that would allow 529 money to be used for school loans, as well as homeschooling expenses and um, apprenticeship fees. It's just a proposal. We don't know if it's going to come law or not, but it is on the table, so it's something to, to keep your eye on. Next question comes from Jody. I have two accounts that are pushing the boundaries of the SIPC coverage. A brokerage account at Ameritrade, thanks to great investment advice from Stock Advisor, Aww. and a 401k at Fidelity. I also have a much smaller investor account at Fidelity. Are there any recommendations on what to do if you pass the SIPC coverage limit? Do multiple accounts at one brokerage each have their own SIPC coverage? Also, how do you go about splitting a 401k account in two? Can you just transfer holdings to, the another, to another 401k? Yeah, so SIPC insurance is it's it's an insurance that is can conceptually similar to the FDIC insurance which enforces banks. So so if if you have money at a at a bank or savings institution, you can have protection if that underlying institution were to go bankrupt or if there was a run on the banks, you would have you would be reimbursed. In this case, the FDIC is sort of a federal program that you can rely on. SIPC insurance isn't really backed by the government. It's a form of reinsurance that all of the different financial institutions pay into. They pay dues into it to kind of support the program. And uh, it's, it's also not protection on the value of your account if it went down just because the stock market went down. It really is if, if the underlying, you know, if Fidelity went bankrupt, and in the proceedings of that bankruptcy, we're not able to uh, give you your the value of your shares back. Then they, the SIPC insurance would work to make sure that you have you know remuneration for those shares. Right. So a little bit complicated, but as you get into the more specifics of it, what's interesting is uh, different than FDIC insurance. SIPC insurance is coverage levels at what they refer to as capacities, and so the capacities typically a decent way or a decent analogy to think about it is the account type. So if you have a corporate account that has five hundred thousand dollars worth of SIPC insurance, if you have an IRA, just a normal traditional IRA, that also has five hundred thousand dollars of SIPC insurance. If you have a Roth IRA in addition to those two accounts, that has an additional $500,000 in SIPC insurance. Uh, then you also can start to look at it if you have a joint account, that has its own $500,000. And then if you had an individual account, that has its own $500,000. In addition, you can also have $500,000 worth of SIPC insurance per the brokerage firm. So if you have a joint account at Fidelity, that has its $500,000. If you have a joint account at Charles Schwab, that has $500,000. So long story short, SIPC insurance is something that people ask about because they want to make sure they're protected. The reality of needing to utilize SIPC insurance is quite low. Uh, I don't. I think there might be maybe a total of five claims against SIPC insurance, or some astronomically small amount. Also, keep in mind, just further nerding out on this question. Most brokerage firms, because it's mostly supported by the brokerage firms, purchase excess 
SIPC insurance. So they will per- just basically get an additional layer. Now it's not not a ton. It might be another hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of insurance per account or something to that effect. Um, and the excess SIPC insurance, according to the records and the finan- forensic analysis, has only been utilized twice in history. And these programs are only about 43 years old, give or take. So they're a relatively new program. But I think I would assuage any uh, concerns that you have that it's just very unlikely that these firms go bankrupt and you have to worry about that. Right. And, and I, what about part two, splitting a 401k account in two? Uh, that depends. First of all, if, you, if you're talking about the 401k account, account you have with a current employer, they will have their own rules about whether you can move the money. If it's a 401k with an old employer, you can transfer it to an IRA and you can split it up into multiple IRAs if you want. So that's really the big difference there. Next question comes from Brian. If you had $500 to invest, would you put 100 into five different ETFs, maybe an ETF in five different sectors, for example, or would you put all 500 into one more diversified ETF? I chose this, this one because, I this because well, you were, it makes me think like if a bunch of Motley Fool investing team were like sitting around a campfire, <laughs> just being like, okay, okay, <laughs> so you got five. What do you? What do you? Do, right? Like so. Anyway, it's just like it just sounds like one of those questions that a bunch of Motley Fool analysts would just like talk about for days. Yes, that's around prob- a campfire. That's probably true. Why did you choose this question? I chose it because my wife and I recently added um, some money to our kids' brokerage accounts, and we were just thinking, like, right, how do we want to do this? And we chose to split it up. So we chose a couple of stocks um, and with a little bit of input from the kids, but then also chose three ETFs. So I chose a large cap ETF, a small cap ETF, and then an international stock ETF. If I were feeling saucy, I would have also chosen an emerging markets ETF, which have been, they've been clobbered recently. Um, so, I mean, you just have to be ready for a wild ride. But I think over the next 10 years, they'll be one of the best investments you can make. But who knows? Yeah, and I'll take I'll take the other side of this, uh, just because typically if I get the question, I have five hundred dollars. How should I invest it? It means that that person is new, or they they are just getting started with their savings journey. And in theory, you should be diversified. But one of the things that I run into from a behavioral finance perspective is that. If you invest $500 in a diversified ETF, you could maybe expect it to go up 8% over the course of a year. 8% on $500 isn't going to jazz anyone to the sky. And so what you could do is invest that $500 in maybe one or two stocks because the potential that that $500 turns into something more meaningful is greater. And then you've hooked them on the idea of investing and longer term that develops good habits. Um, But that would always be couched in the fact that they need to be able to risk this $500. And so. Yeah. And with the small amounts, you always have to be concerned about commissions. Yep. Um, the good thing about ETFs is that most brokerages now have some commission-free ETFs. So that's part of where we started as well. Yeah. Next question comes from Daniel. My wife and I make a combined $140,000 per year. When we did our taxes for 2017, we had about a $6,000 tax bill. We could not figure out why. When we entered our W-2s into the nifty tax software, it was mine that skyrocketed our tax bill into Sadland. The only thing that we could think of is that I contributed to a Roth 401k, whereas she contributes to a traditional 401k plan. Would this affect our tax bill? We're desperately trying to avoid another hard-hitting tax bill. In fact, I've even reduced my exemptions from one on my 
W4 to zero since we had to pay up. Please, for the love of all things foolish, help us. Well, as the president of Sadland, I think I'm highly <laughs> qualified to answer this question. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yes, you've, I think you've identified the primary reason why your tax bill went up. And the, the reason for that is that when you save to a 401k pre-tax, you are essentially deferring taxes on the amount that you contribute to that 401k, and your paycheck is higher because they're not clipping those taxes out of your paycheck per contribution. So if you have a $2,500 a month salary and you save $700 a month into your 401k, that turns your salary from $2,500 a month to $1,800 a month, and you don't owe the taxes on that extra $700. So come the end of the year, your tax bill is lower because your income is lower and taxes on lower income are lower. So by saving to the Roth, you are paying that tax in real time. It doesn't act as a deduction on your salary. And so that, that's pretty much the primary reason why you're facing it. Then the question you have to ask yourself is, is that higher tax bill worth saving into the Roth? Because in the future, you won't owe taxes on those Roth contributions, whereas if it's pre-tax, you will. And so you just have to decide, is your tax bracket currently low in totality of your future and in totality of the different tax brackets? Right. So that's an interesting question, right? Thanks to the new tax law, most people are in a lower tax bracket, right? And, and many people will say we're at the lowest tax brackets we possibly could be, given that Social Security is underfunded, Medicare is underfunded, growing deficits. At some point, taxes have to go up. But we've been saying that for years, Never. and it's very difficult. I mean, really, the, the decision of the Roth is, am I going to be in a higher tax bracket in the future when I want that tax break, or am I in a higher tax bracket today? They make a decent income. Yeah. So it's a tough question. I think part of what they're doing is actually smart, where they're saving in a traditional account with the wife's income, Roth in, with his income, so they're getting that tax diversification. But when you speak with clients or work with clients, do you make any sort of projection about what tax rates will be in the future? We do. Uh, as you've been pointing out, I mean, everyone has been saying that tax rates will go up in the future. And we'll keep saying it because we just are in historically low a tax environment. Now, other planners and researchers will say that you can raise taxes without raising income taxes. So you could increase sales tax, you could create a VAT tax system or all sorts of policy mechanisms that would increase the overall tax collection process to account for those debts without raising taxes on income. And so it's possible that you, we never see higher income tax rates. And really, when I work with clients, we will look at their specific income projections and we'll say, okay, right now you're at $140,000 a year. Do you see that getting to $300,000 in the future? And at what time do you think you'll retire? And, and we'll just map out the next 40 years of their life and just make sure that we're tending to the tax brackets each year to maximize their overall total lifetime tax liability. Um, personally, I save pre-tax. I don't make a huge amount of money. Um, I prefer tax deferral so that I don't have to pay that tax liability up front and can get my growth engine on the investments going as fast as possible. But that's, you know, it, it's hard. It is a hard question to answer. Yeah. Next question. Oh, and it's our last question. Comes from uh, Twitter. Uh, I don't know how to say it. D.T. Schelt. 
I have been having a hard time justifying my use of Robinhood over buying stocks in my Roth IRA, especially with the fool ideology of buying and holding for the long term. Is there a place for Robinhood if I have an IRA? Stocks! Thanks, love. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. Bonds! <laughs> I just love it when people yell what stocks at me. Uh, okay. Well, so I, 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 I um, picked this question because I'm not sure if the question is, is Robinhood available inside an IRA? Because I, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's only available for taxable brokerage accounts. But if that's the underlying question, there are alternatives to Robinhood where you could get commission-free IRA investments, right. or, which is which is what's attractive about Robinhood. The, the fact yeah. is that you do not pay commissions on the trades. Exactly, exactly. And so there are alternatives. Um, you know, we, we we could spend a little while going through that, or or alternatives that are very low cost. So maybe you pay a dollar per trade. Um, if the underlying question is, is there a place to save both to the Roth? And to a taxable brokerage account where I utilize Robinhood, I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, it's going to depend on your ability to uh, have the, the the income and save that income, but certainly would prioritize saving to the Roth first, and then if you have extra money coming in, save it in a taxable brokerage account. Yeah, I would say the tax-free growth of a Roth is very, very powerful, and it's not worth giving up just to have free commissions because there are too many other places to pay very low commissions or no commissions. Yep. Definitely go with the Roth first. And the great thing about the Roth IRA is that if you need the money before you're 59 and a half, you have more flexibility with getting it out early if you need it, especially just the contributions. So I would definitely say max out the Roth IRA first. You're going to have to do it somewhere other than Robinhood. Then turn to Robinhood if you want those commission free trades. I would say one of the, ra- one of the ways Robinhood is able to have commission-free trades is that they don't, like a lot of brokerages, they don't pay you much on cash. Yeah. So all the cash that's sitting in those accounts, they're not paying you any interest so they can make a little money off of it. Um, so that's one way that you actually are paying some money to be part of Robinhood if you have a lot of money in cash and you're not doing anything with it. They also sell the order flow, yeah, which is a little bit more complicated. But all the brokerage firms that exist have the, could, in theory, what essentially amounts to front-running trades, where when you place an order, let's say you want to buy 100 shares of Apple, when you place that order, they can basically pause that order and then go to high-frequency traders and say, hey, look, high-frequency traders, this person wants to buy 100 shares of Apple. Do you want to sell that company, or do you want to do something differently? And there are some firms that don't do that, but just keep in mind that they make money on that order flow because those institutions will pay for that insight. And so that's another way that you're kind of potentially paying for the cost. Mm. One final note is I think you're ahead of the game with asking this question because I run into folks a lot of times who all they do is think that they need to save to their retirement accounts. They meet the contribution limits and then they stop saving. They're just like, I'll spend the rest. So thinking about saving additional money to a taxable account is a very good thought. It creates good habits, and it should provide you with a good setup for a good retirement. All right. Well, that covers it for the questions, but we have other housekeeping. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Yes, thanks for having me.
Well, bro, it's time for the rest of the housekeeping of the show. We got a lot of great feedback from you guys on our caregiving episodes and also on our how to get rid of stuff and help others you love also get rid of stuff episodes. So thank you for that, Uh, particularly Dave and Aaron, who shared their personal experiences. Um, Your feedback is a gift, especially when you say nice things about us. All right, we've received some fantastic postcards. Here we go. Tony is listening while riding his roo all over Australia. Josh, we got your Seattle postcard. Don't forget to send us one from Japan, which is what Jim did from Tokyo. Bro, you'll remember him as the guy who listens while he's got, he's got the waterproof MP3 player. Oh, that's or, right. <laughs> right. He listens while he swims laps. Ian sent a card from Namibia. He says that the full podcast have provided the soundtrack for 50 plus hours of bus rides through Africa. Oh, goodness. Which is a lot of Chris Hill and Jason Moser talking about Amazon. <laughs> uh, Jody essentially said that our podcast is as boring as Wyoming. But it was a postcard from the Tetons, which are gorgeous, so I'll take it as a huge compliment. She's saying we're gorgeous? That's awesome. I know. Tripp and Drew brothers are eating barbecue in North Carolina, and they think I'm as cute as a button. (laughs) They called you a curmudgeon. (laughs) Fat in Mississippi has been listening for a year now and has learned so much. Aww. Uh, Eric graduated last spring from Eastern Illinois University, with, and with our help, he says that he has no debt and a pretty good size portfolio. Awesome. I would say any size portfolio if you've yeah. graduated from college is a good size portfolio. Um, Rich sent in a couple more reports from uh, his trip on the road, including from New Mexico. Uh, he sent some conspiracy theories about Roswell, which we'll need to discuss later. Mm. The Wild Thing sent a card from Niagara Falls, said it was awesome. Don is on a long motorcycle trip, and he says he couldn't take months off to do it without the fool. Kurt was going to send a card from Iraq, but sent one from Minnesota instead after coming home safely. Glad to hear that. that. Uh, Where in the world is 50 billion sent? Well, this time it's India, where he says there aren't any traffic laws, but you cannot, but uh, how you keep from getting run run over is just by giving people the hand. And apparently they stop and then you can cross. I don't know. I know. Todd sent a card from North Carolina, says we're the best. Joseph sent a card from Barcelona. If you've been there, you get to say it that way. Okay. Someone sent a card from the Marvin Window and Door Museum, but they didn't leave a name. <laughs> Maybe they weren't proud that they visited the Marvin Window and Door Museum. Uh, but yeah, I looked all over it. You'll have to have you look too. I didn't see a name on it. Uh, Melanie sent a card from Minnesota. She has this is the second of six weddings she has to go to this oh, year. Goodness. Oh, so expensive. And Dedrick sent a card from the New Legacy Civil Rights Museum. He says it's a must-see in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, man, you guys live the best lives. And thank you for bringing us into it, Um, whether you're riding a bus in Africa or, you know, doing a lot of North Carolina this time around. I guess that's the place to be. All right, that's the show. I want to thank Sean again for joining us. And... If you want to send us a postcard, our email is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia. Also, our email is answers at fool.com. We do this mailbag episode at the end of every month, so get your questions in. The show is edited very dustingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> <laughs> For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.